Today, um, in, in somewhat of a timely manner, this wasn't planned, obviously, but uh, we're going to be continuing our series of what it means for Jesus to be our, our good shepherd. And uh, as we approach the holiday season and we have lots of things that are going to be distracting, uh, there's, there's no doubt that things are going to lobby for our minds and our hearts, uh, these teachings really give us kind of a, an anchor, if you will, to, to really understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow Christ during, uh, dur- dur- in every day of our life. So last week we began by studying this parable that Jesus taught, where he likened himself to being the good shepherd that we read about in the Old Testament. And those who follow him, that's us, are considered his sheep. He calls them his sheep. That's a very rough term, but a term of endearment. You want to listen to that sermon if, the, if you weren't here last week, because it really sets a foundational understanding for this dynamic relationship that Jesus has with us. He is our good shepherd, and we are his sheep. And it was in John 10, 1 through 13, that Jesus gave us this criteria for what a false shepherd is. In other words, he said, listen, there are lots of people that are going to call you to follow them in life. But I'm telling you, many of them are not going to call you to good things. They're going to try to mislead you in areas and maybe even take advantage of you. And so he gave us this great dichotomy of the false shepherd and the good shepherd so that we could learn to discern between the two. We could learn to follow our good shepherd and stay away from false shepherds. And this is a, this is a teaching that benefits, it doesn't matter who you are, Christian or non-Christian, um, having this discernment ability is, is important so you can understand what is right and good and true in the world. And so today we're going to expand upon this good shepherd theme that was first introduced in John 10, 1 through 13. And now we'll unpack it in another layer in, in John, chapter, or John chapter 10, verses 14 through 13. Like last week, there's a pretty rich historical subtext underneath what we're studying. Last week, it was the Good Shepherd motif. This week, uh, believe it or not, in a very timely way, uh, what we're studying revolves around the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. And if any of you have Jewish roots or have just you know, been a, a student of the Jewish faith, you will know that in the modern world, most people see Hanukkah as a sort of Jewish equivalent to Christmas. That's almost how it's looked upon. And we think of, uh, in the same way uh, people who celebrate Christmas might think of a tree and presents under the tree, we think of, uh, when we think of Hanukkah, we tend to think of families lighting a menorah and exchanging gifts for eight days and nights. And while that has become uh, perhaps the most visible part of the religion, of the faith, of the tradition, the holiday itself has a much deeper spiritual significance. Uh, the word Hanukkah actually means dedication. And that's why when, you, when we just read uh, this chapter in John, that's what the subtext is entitled, the festival of dedication. What they're doing is talking about Hanukkah. And that's what the word means. And it was established as tradition around 164 BC to remind God's people of a time where they were freed from spiritual darkness. I'll give you a quick story up here on the history. It's fascinating if you ever want to explore global and biblical history. But in 332 BC, you guys have probably heard of this guy. His name is Alexander the Great. Uh, he set the foundation uh, much, he preceded the Romans, but set the foundation for the modern Western world that you and I live in and some of the amenities that we enjoy. Uh, and what had happened is, is the Greeks, prior to the Romans, were taking the world over, and they had conquered the Middle East and this little place called Palestine in the process, which is where the heart of Judaism is at this point in history. And over the next 150 years, uh, under Greek rule, uh, the Jewish people begin to slowly embrace uh, many of the religious and cultural practices that the Greeks had brought with them. And as a result, uh, the Jewish faith becomes what we would probably call in modern terms uh, slightly watered down. It starts looking like something that is uh, it's, it's syncretized between Greek belief and, and Jewish belief. And so it becomes like a new religion of sorts. And so those who remained faithful to Judaism believed that embracing these Greek practices, it was really beginning to defile the Jewish faith. 
and it got so bad that a band of people emerged to, to try to protect the Jewish faith. So this disagreement actually turns into uh, a war, which was unfortunately very common in that part of the world at that season in history. And so the great historian Josephus tells us that this conflict reaches a boiling point uh, when a, gr- a group of Greek soldiers, they desecrate the Jewish temple. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you understand this. The temple in the Old Testament is as significant to the faith as Jesus is to us in the New Testament. So this is like messing with the epicenter of, of Judaism. And what happens here is Greek soldiers, they desecrate the Jewish temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar, pillaging uh, holy items, and worshiping pagan gods in it. And if you read the Old Testament, you know this is like the trifecta. Like if you want to uh, rub a faithful, uh, uh, a faithful follower of Judaism wrong, this is what you do. These are like core restrictions in the faith, and it does not sit well with the people at all. And so it's meant to be this, this ultimate religious insult against God's people in the Old Testament, or at least in the transition as we're moving into the New Testament world. So eventually, the people get angry and fed up, and this resistance emerges, led by a Jewish uh, revolutionary named uh, Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. they call him the Hammer, Judas the Hammer. And, you know, you have to, he has a beer named after him now today in modern Judaism. It's kind of funny, I think. You've got to have a pretty strong uh, a pedigree, I think, to be able to get a nickname like this. And he is a, a pretty tough cat. And what happens is, is he, rele- he successfully leads this revolt to recapture the temple. And after he does, Hanukkah is born. They rededicate the temple. They clean it. They purge it. They get rid of all the stuff that has essentially insulted God. And they say, look, we're going to get right with God again. The festival of dedication, Hanukkah, will be a time where we always remember that we have to follow God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And so because Judaism had slipped into such disarray during this historical period, Hanukkah becomes this time, it's inaugurated as this time, where Jewish people are thinking about failed leaders and false shepherds who led them astray during this period. That's what's happened. You have people who have compromised the faith, leading them down a faulty faith. And as a result, all of this mess takes place. They're reminded, simply put, of a time in their history when good shepherds are in short supply. And Jesus, I said last week, being the master teacher, he does some master teaching again. He's giving this good shepherd teaching to, this, to the people who are attending this festival, the Pharisees, festival of dedication. This is actually happening. In, historically, while he's talking about being the good shepherd, the festival of dedication is taking place in the backdrop. And he uses this next teaching to show that he is the fulfillment of that, sem- that ceremony. He's essentially saying, listen, you've rededicated your life. You're celebrating a time when, when God's leaders were not really leading well. You're thinking about what a good shepherd is. And I'm here to tell you, uh, think no more. I'm the, I'm the guy. And he does this by teaching uh, them, and certainly us today, this universal truth about people. And this leads us to the first real bi- the big nugget we want to talk about this morning. Jesus shows us that to some degree, and I may, may even be a little more forceful in this language, to a very certain degree, every single person is looking for a shepherd to follow in life. And you can see this in John 10, 24 through 25. Let me reread it. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, again, remember the festival's going on, they're listening to what he's saying. They're gathered around him saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Like if you're the Messiah, if you're the good shepherd, these are all synonyms, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I, I did tell you, but you don't believe. That's what we talked about last week. He keeps saying, listen, um, I'm the guy, but because they, they cannot get their heads, their hearts, and their minds wrapped around Jesus being the good shepherd, they can't believe. The issue here is not evidence. The issue is that they don't want to believe, and that's what Jesus says. Until you de-harden your heart a little bit, you're never going to see who I am. What we learn on the, on the positive side of this is that the people in our story are waiting on God's promise for his good shepherd to come and to lead them to personal peace. They're asking him these questions because they're expecting a good shepherd to show up. They're just not sure he's it. 
And so in these verses that we just read, during this Hanukkah festival, the Pharisees in the crowd are demanding that Jesus let them know who he really is. They want to know if he's a good shepherd. And you get this impression like that they're anxious about it, that there's this anticipation that is killing them. It tends to build through the Gospel of John because uh, in this period of history, they were waiting for the promise of the good shepherd. And with the promise of the good shepherd came some pretty amazing benefits. We talked about some of the New Testament promises last week, and some of them are there's still promises that were uh, given to people in the Old Testament. They knew that with the coming of God's good shepherd, with the coming of the Messiah, they were going to finally find their ultimate God in life. They were going to finally find the guy who could bring them ultimate hope, joy, and a really important thing, the theme of our talk today, a long-desired peace in their personal lives. Because remember, right now in first century Judaism, there is no peace. It's, or at this point, which precedes first century Judaism, there is, uh, there is a lot of conquering going on. God's people are constantly being conquered by another nation. And so they're not, they're not the way they want to be right now. So they're longing for peace and expecting God to make good on the promise of delivering it. And this makes perfect sense if you think about what we studied last week. Remember, one of the primary responsibilities of the good shepherd is to lead his flock to still waters or to green pastures. These are synonyms, right? Psalm 23, which we, we read last week and we sang again this week, shows us that the good shepherd is deeply committed to providing, guiding, and taking care of his flock. So still waters and green pastures, they're metaphors that likely conjure up images of tranquility and peace in your mind. They are promises of God. To, to essentially take the raging seas of life or the weeds of life and to bring a lush greenness to them or tranquility in water. The idea is, is stability. Now, peace is something we all want. Peace is something we pray for. Peace is something that we, we long for in life. And it is one of the great promises of the gospel. It is one of the great promises that the good shepherd makes to those who follow him. However, there is a very serious caveat when it comes to understanding what God means by finding peace in life. And a lot of us never find it because we actually are expecting something from God when it comes to peace that he's not promised us. So I want to tell you what the good shepherd did not promise us when he talked about bringing his peace to us. The good shepherd never promised that he would take away all the dangers or the wandering in the wilderness of life. That's often what we think of when we think of peace in life. We think of the absence of problem, the absence of trial, the absence of challenge. And we all have those seasons, right, where life is relatively smooth. And having peace in those seasons is not difficult. Uh, where the rubber meets the road is when we are in seasons of life that are challenging and difficult. Where then does that promise, ma- ma- where does that matter? And that is really where I think truly experiencing the promise of peace, that's going to evidence itself and whether or not you both theologically and logically understand what it means to know Jesus' peace. So he does not say, I'm going to take it all away, although he can and sometimes does. The normative promise is not the removal or the absence of, of, of conflict in life, whatever it may be. However, he does promise i.e. the good shepherd, that he's going to faithfully guide and protect us, his sheep, as, as we navigate through the dangers of the world. So it's not that he removes the trial, it's that he promises to lead us through them. And so the idea behind this metaphor is that the world can be a rough place to live in. And if we're going to make it in this world, that's not saying we're not strong or vibrant or energetic or intelligent people, but if we're going to truly follow the good shepherd and make it in one piece, the way he wants us to make it, we have to have a good shepherd who can guide us to, a, to peaceful waters and pastures. If you're looking for the peace of Jesus, you can't find that on your own. You have to pursue Jesus because he leads you to the still water and the green pasture. And one of the things that I love about our church, I mean dramatically love about our church, is that we make a place for suffering and trial here. 
We recognize that some Sundays there is electric and dynamic you know, worship and teaching and we're talking about the greatness of life. But the, the life is not always great. And so one of the real distinctives of our church is that we want to make a place to follow Jesus when life is not great. We want to make a place for suffering and for trial. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. We want to make a place when tragedy takes place across the other part, the side of the world. And God offers us this, this peace in Jesus because he knows as his creation, we long to have a peace like this in our heart. We've been hardwired to be at peace and we kick against the gold when we are not. Now just let's personalize this for a minute. I want you to think about your own life for a few minutes. How many times have you prayed for, right? If you're a Christian, you're praying. Maybe if you're not a Christian or you're exploring the faith right now, you, you have something, some kind of coping mechanism you go towards to, to find peace when it is absent in your life. Maybe you pray to God or Jesus directly or some ambiguous spiritual thing. I don't know. Or maybe you turn to a person or an object or a substance with the hope that it would make your problems go away. Life is challenging and you're, you're going to your coping mechanism. Maybe you have a place you go to, like a, a quiet place, a literal green pasture, whatever that looks like. Or you have a person whose words you really need to hear, a parent, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, or a good friend. You, their voice comforts you during times of trial when life gets tough. We all have some sort of coping mechanism to deal with the storms of life. And here's why. When they hit, we want out. Nobody says, dear Lord, bless this food and bring me great and substantial trial. That's not a normal prayer for us, right? So what happens is, is we don't want that ever. And when it does happen, maturity in the faith says that we have to recognize that trial can actually have a purpose in life. Trial can actually be the kind of thing that we, there, there is less anxiety with it, with it when we understand that there is a peace we can tap into that Jesus offers us and a purpose that trial really can help us to grow more deeply in our love and image of Jesus. When they hit, we want out. And we are conditioned to seek safe harbor in some quiet bay when, when a strong, with a strong breakwater when the violence of the sea kind of swells up. So spiritually speaking... I'll say it again. We're hardwired to want peace because God has created us to be at peace. And one of the consequences of sin is that we lost God's permanent peace. This is why seeing sin is much more than just morality, although that is part of it. Uh, we really fail the, the, the broad definition of sin, the deep definition of sin, when we just say it is a, we restrict it to something moral. It is completely moral. There's a, a moral component to sin. But, but not having peace is a byproduct of sin. We're, we're, that fractured promise that God gives us it's, it's broken, and we have to figure out now in the grace of Jesus to, to find restoration in it. That's the name of our church, right? It's, we have to pray to get it back, and we have to labor to get it back, and we have to wrestle deeply with the truths of Scripture and community to figure out how to, how to live in that again. The bottom line is people are hardwired to try to find peace in things that are kind of like God that aren't God, and that's a statement I've used here before. Let me give you some examples here. And it's, it's not hard to see how people do this. We look to all kinds of things to try and find peace in life. Here are some of the big ones. Some of them are just natural human rhythms, and some of them are cultural right now. They're just timely. The biggest one is relationships. Over the years, the most common one that I have found people resort to, and I'm no, you know, I'm, I, I suffer from the same thing, um, is, is you look to people uh, or to relationships to lead you to still waters in life. And we touched on this briefly last week with the woman at the well, right? Think about the premise of that whole story. She, ha- she has no peace in her life. And what she's doing is, is she is essentially being taken advantage of by multitudes of men thinking that some guy's going to help her find her ultimate peace. And all that's happening there is they're taking absolute advantage of her. They're pressing her. And she finds out the hard way that living like this, um, it's not hydrating her soul. It's, it's like drinking seawater. It's slowly killing her. It's dehydrating her. So let's take this analogy and put it into our lives for a minute. If you think that you can find an ultimate peace in a relationship, not saying you can't find any peace or hope we'll join a relationship, but your ultimate peace, right, in a relationship, 
what's going to happen is it's going to complicate your ability to, to experience peace. Because if you're the person who's looking for the good shepherd's ultimate peace in a friendship or a romantic relationship, um, it will ruin your ability to actually have a healthy relationship. And here's why. Each time the people in those relationships fail you, and they're going to, because remember, we're all human and we make a lot of mistakes. Nobody apart from Jesus can ultimately satisfy you like that. What happens is, is as a protective measure, you start to build walls around your heart. And every time you're hurt, you build another layer of the wall because you're tired of getting hurt by people. And we want safety and peace. So we say, look, people are taking advantage of me. They're hurting me. And I'm just going to get hard. I'm going to build the wall up so that you can't hurt me anymore. And we think that, that we're, we're making our lives safe. But what happens is eventually that wall gets so hard and so high that your, your heart becomes a bit inaccessible. And if you ever get to this place or have been at this place, you know that is a very lonely, peaceless place to be. You might be protected from people, but you're all alone in the middle of a, a relational compound. It's just you and yourself at that point. There is no peace in that. And that's why you have to be careful of looking to other people for your ultimate peace. It's going to fail you. And it's going to drift. It's a false shepherd. It's going to guide you in a way that you're not meant to be uh, following. I'll give you another example, a very timely one. Some people look to political leaders for a greener pasture. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, um, and I have said this once before. I have an incredibly strong conviction as a pastor and your pastor to be non-political when I teach. So please hear me on this one. While we might address issues of culture uh, that are timely, my heart here and desire is never to affirm or deny a political party or person. We're not touching that with a 10-foot pole um, for a myriad of reasons. Perhaps one of the biggest ones is we could actually lose our status as a church for it, right? So what I want to do in a situation like this is I want to preach Jesus in a way uh, that we can know how to make good decisions when it comes to, uh, to the privilege we have to vote. We're in a democracy and we get to do this. So it's important that in seasons like this, we're in an election season, what I want to do here is speak to the election season, not to particular candidates, okay? So just like in a relationship, you have to be careful of placing the expectation of finding ultimate peace in your life on the next elected leader, no matter which office they hold, from the highest to the lowest in the country. And here's why. All you have to do is look at the platform that every politician campaigns under. They promise, if elected, often with noble intentions, that they're going to make life better for us. Uh, that they're going to stabilize the economy, that they're going to usher in an era of prosperity. They're going to give our kids a better tomorrow, right? Get the little thumb thing going on. That's what they say they're going to do, right? And, and sometimes that happens. I mean, not all of this is bad. Sometimes we experience those things, but sometimes we don't, and things get noticeably worse. You never hear that one, right? So hopefully by now we've learned that even with the best intentions and highest levels of integrity, there is no politician, uh, political system, or government that can lead us to an ultimate greener, that ultimate greener pasture that Jesus talks about. This is why Jesus, when, when he's often given or approached with these significantly controversial questions in the New Testament, what is truth? Or who do you support? Are you for the Romans or the Jews? Jesus is never saying like, yes, I am, uh, I am actually going to vote on the third district for the Roman emperor. He doesn't say that. What he does is he introduces the third way. He says, no, listen, I want to tell you about a kingdom that defines a kingdom, a capital K kingdom. My kingdom, it, it is really, it is the good shepherd that should, be, that should be leading all kingdoms. And that is not the way it is in our world. But for those of us in the kingdom, those of us following Jesus, we have to know this. The ultimate kingdom we support is Christ's. And that's how we should be thinking about a season like this. Because the task is too big, and history teaches us, no one has ever established a human utopia. You will not find it. I mean, I have a hard enough time trying to get utopia at my supper table for 30 minutes in my home, let alone thinking about the complicated geopolitical cultures of, of our world. So even if somebody solves a problem today, and some of them are solved, some of them really do great work, no one, uh, new ones always emerge tomorrow. This is the nature of humanity. We fix an issue and... And then we have a broken issue, and sometimes we fix an issue that gets broken. And so we need a greater peace than this. 
And the beauty of God's peace is that although it exists in the world, it is a kingdom within a kingdom. Hear me on this. It is not bound by the laws of our world. God's peace can transcend economic recessions, poor job reports, or any other uh, cultural climatic thing that goes on. It doesn't matter what the issue is. Peace can transcend those things because Jesus is not subject to them. He is the Lord over them. So remember that as we move into this election season in our country, it's already getting heated and nasty. Um, If you don't embrace this, you're likely going to be very angry, disappointed, and peaceless over the next years. Have a healthy hope in in an elected leader, but not a good shepherd hope, because only Jesus made that promise to you, and he's the only one that can keep it. Sometimes people approach approach, uh, leaders or pastors for a perfect peace in life. Now, this is a big one, and I'll say this now and I'll say it again. Um, With issues like this, I'm not saying this because I'm like trying to underhand something here. This isn't an issue at our church, and that's why we talk about them so that we make sure there are never issues. Uh, In some sense, what happens here is um, people believe that a minister or a leader, a community group leader, or even just somebody that's mature in the faith, they have some magical ability that God has bestowed upon them to... um, to hear a person's problems or issues in life, and then they have this magical ability to make them go away with some well-placed uh, w- words. It's kind of like God gave them a, a hat and a wand, and you know, people just tap you on the shoulder and like, you know, my peace I give you, and you're happy for life. That's kind of how people think. We want this instant fix, right? And there's no doubt that uh, pastors in particular, uh, leaders, those that God has kind of set apart to, to shepherd the flock, they are responsible for caring for the sheep. This is one of those it's one of those um, transferable responsibilities that the good, sheep, capital, uh, the good Shepherd, capital G, gives to those who love and lead God's people. However, you have to know that the most noble of leaders and pastors, even with the best gospel intentions, that what they know deep in the depths of their heart is that they cannot shepherd you or pastor you like Jesus can. They can do that to a certain degree, but they can never be your ultimate or good shepherd, capital G. It's also worth noting that uh, leaders, no matter who they are, they are, all, they are also sheep. So a pastor um, is a sheep just like you, an under-shepherd, we would say, but, but they're susceptible to the same challenges and struggles that every other sheep is. So even though God has assigned people to be under-shepherds in the church of his flock, you have to know that no person can ever shepherd you with the fullness and completeness that Jesus can. This is a relationship. And like any relationship, unrealistic expectations are the greatest source of tension between, between two people. This is certainly true for leaders, pastors, and their sheep. That goes both ways. And again, I'll say it. Thankfully, this isn't an issue here. But the reason we talk about things like this is because we want to keep, we want to keep it that way. We don't ever want this to be a major issue. So in past talks, I've given you this, this kind of analogy, and I think it's a good one. I'll share it again. I've jokingly likened this to, to you and I um, going and playing a, a pickup game of basketball. I played a lot of sports when I was a younger man, uh, basketball being one of them. I was, I was okay at basketball. I was more like a bruiser. You brought me in to foul somebody. That was like what I loved doing. Uh, <clears throat> and so basketball was never a strong suit, but I worked hard at it. And I'll, I'll, it's, it would be like you and me going out to play basketball, pick, a pickup game, if you were young enough to remember what that means. You just go up to some court and you stand on the sideline to get in the game, and then you run games for the rest of the day. Uh, and we go out there, and there's this team you've been wanting to beat for a long time. And you pick me up, right? And I come in, and I'm, I'm hustling, and I'm shooting the ball. And you've got this, this uncanny ability to do it like an alley-oop. Like, you can get that ball over the net, and you expect me to, like, jump up there and put that, that ball in the goal every time because we're wide open, like cherry-picking at the end, other end of the court. And so what happens is, is you keep setting me up with these perfect passes every single time. And time and time again, I keep running down there trying to grab that ball and to dunk it. And, and time and time again, I, I just can't do it. It's just not happening. And so you keep doing it, and then you start getting mad at me because you're like, hey, this is like so perfect. Like, how come you can't put the ball in the goal? And finally, I get mad, and I say, look, 
It's not that I don't want to put that ball in the goal, and it's not that you're not giving me a great pass. It's just that, let's be honest, like I'm an Italian kid who's five foot, 10 inches tall when it's really sunny outside. It's probably five, nine on a rainy day, right? And there is no feasible way, although with my greatest desire, I want to have like six feet of ups, I cannot grab that ball and put that in the goal. It's not for a lack of want. It's for a lack of actual ability. You cannot expect me to do this. And if you do, you're just going to continually get mad at me. And then at some point, you just won't want to play basketball with me anymore. So when you think about pastors, right, community group leaders, or any other leader in this church, just somebody you look up to or respect, even a parent in the faith, uh, whether that's physical or metaphorically, um, or, or, or if, uh, you know, we live in a transient county, and so we connect with as many people as we send on into different parts of the country and even globe. Um, no matter where you are in this church or in your journey that God leads you to over the, the next years of your life, I want to caution you to, to never look to an under-shepherd for an ultimate peace in life that only the good shepherd can bring you. It's just, it's a recipe for disaster. In all of these things, there is a certain level of peace that they can offer you in this life. I'm not saying that we shouldn't expect anything here, but I am saying there is nothing you can trust, whether it's a relationship, a leader, a politician, that that will bring you the kind of good shepherd peace that Jesus will. So asking someone or something else to take that place in your life is guaranteed to set you and that other thing up for failure because Jesus is the only one who has made and kept, can keep the promise. That's the nature of what it means to, to really understand who Jesus is and to follow him alone as the good shepherd because there are lots of opportunities to follow other shepherds, some noble, some not so noble. And this good shepherd reality, it leads me to the second truth that I want to share with you this morning. Um, it's, it's an important juice, uh, excuse me, not juice, we're not drinking that right now. It's an important truth that Jesus begins to reiterate, okay, throughout the course of this teaching. He's going to keep coming back to this idea because what's happening is, is he keeps saying, hey, I'm the good shepherd and you can only find peace in me, but they're not understanding it. And that's why Jesus says, listen, um, I've already told you I'm the good shepherd. You just don't believe it. Second thing I want to talk about is Jesus is the only good shepherd. If you truly believe that, Jesus is the only good shepherd you can look to in this life to find ultimate peace in your heart. I want to unpack this a little bit. John 10, 14 through 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Key statement we'll visit at the end of this. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen or this sheep pen. I must bring them also. What he's talking about here is the church global. You know, he's talking about like there are sheep here and there's probably 50 of the churches in Port Orange. There are sheep all over the place and there are sheep all over the globe. And one day, all the sheep that are truly in Jesus, we're going to be in one big pen together when God ends this whole thing and, and we are truly with him in eternity, right? There are, I have other sheep that are not of that particular pen and I've got to bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice. What unifies us is that we follow the shepherd. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down, I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now, in those verses, Jesus gives us three reasons why he alone is qualified to be our good shepherd. I want to touch on them briefly. Uh, the first we picked up a little bit on last week, or, or touched on a little bit last week. He knows the depths of your heart and soul. That's the nature of the good shepherd. He knows the sheep. And so one of the major themes of the Good Shepherd teaching is that Jesus has this uncanny and amazing ability to look into your heart and to know what's really going on. In just about every interaction we looked at in Scripture last week uh, and in our own personal lives, we can probably all testify to seasons where God was able to bring a clarity to our life in situations that we were unable to find on our own. There was an objective truth he brings to, that he can bring to our heart that helps to kind of move away the fog of life. And what this shows us is uh, the Good Shepherd knows you and I better than you and I know ourselves. There's a great Latin proverb that says, know thyself, and it's kind of the precursor to how they believed you grew as a human. 
But in the Christian faith, we, we only believe you can know thyself by having Jesus know you because he's able to see areas of yourself objectively that you and I cannot see objectively. It's also why community is so important because to a certain degree, other people, they're able to bring that reality to our lives, right? And so what this shows us is the good shepherd knows us better than we know us and he knows his flock better than we know the flock. And this is why it makes total sense that he demands nothing less, although he, there's a ton of grace in this request. He demands nothing less than all of you if you really want a relationship with him. This is why we don't embrace consumer Christianity here because Christianity, while there is a receiving element to it, a substantial one, the heart of the Christian faith is about giving one's life back to the kingdom. God says right here, I, you know, Jesus says, God loves me because I lay my, my life down for the sheep. We see that one of the things God loves about Jesus is the fact that, that he is sacrificially living for, for his people. So contribution is one of the great hallmarks of a mature believer, and it's one we should all be striving towards. So you'll never fully experience the love of the shepherd if you withhold areas of your life, the good shepherd, from him. And I'll say this, once you truly understand that kind of love, which we'll talk about in a minute, once you understand the true love of the good shepherd, it begs a serious question. Why don't you want to turn those areas of your life over to him? If you truly believe he is your good shepherd, not doing so means you've chosen to follow a different shepherd when it comes to whatever that thing in your life is. And that's a serious problem in your faith. You've got multiple shepherds you're running after. So we really have to know that God knows the depths of our hearts. And we've got to trust that when he leads us, we've got to follow his voice. That's why he's our good shepherd. Secondly, the true shepherd and the father are one. Now this seems like some nuanced theological statement that Jesus makes in, in John chapter 30. It's a very controversial statement. It's why the, that people want to kill him. This is an, he says this, and people like pick up the stones. He's got to go. The reason is because in doing this, he's, he, you know, he's talking about being the good shepherd in the Old Testament. And, and in a statement like this, he's once again claiming to be God. And because his audience knew the good shepherd of the Old Testament was God, they've recognized this, this is blasphemy in the first century world. So this is a problem for those denying Jesus. They want to kill him. It's considered blasphemy. And it's punishable by death. But it gives us who are trying to follow the good shepherd a unique insight into the type of love uh, Jesus has for us. So lay aside blasphemy for a minute and let's look at what it means for Jesus and the Father to be one because this is a substantial game changer for us. The word John uses for good in the, in, in the description, uh, the word John uses for, for good shepherd is, can also be translated in the Greek as, as beautiful. That's a kind of a synonymous term, beautiful shepherd. And what he's trying to communicate here is that the kind of love that the good shepherd has for his sheep is very attractive. You might remember when we studied Acts 2, we talked about this. People were falling in love with Jesus because they were around uh, a contagious group of people that genuinely loved Jesus. There was grace and truth and love and, and empathy and sacrifice. And that became like one of the magnetic draws that people had to want to follow Jesus. And so what John is saying here is the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, is that Jesus has very attractive qualities. He's got a great beard, I'm sure, but there's, there's greater attractive qualities than just that. And what happens is some of us were so compelled by the grace of Jesus that we saw that as a, as a dispensed beauty. And when he offered it to us, we might have wrestled or struggled with it. At the end of our days, we said, I, I want that. Like, I'm attracted to that, and I, and I want that in my life. I want to believe in the one who offers it. And so unlike any other shepherd in the world, what, what, what Jesus is saying here is, or what, what John is saying, and Jesus is kind of, kind of teaching us, is that you have this amazing connection between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And this beautiful attribute of God is this love that he has for his son and that his son has for him. And this, this love deeply connects them. That's an amazing statement. But it also is deeply connected to us. And that's a more amazing statement as far as I'm concerned. Have you ever thought about that? Verses 14 through 15, Jesus says, look, the kind of love that, that, uh, that Jesus, uh, John says, that Jesus has for you and me is the very same love Jesus has for his father in heaven. That's a mutual love that he pours out on us. 
Jesus and his father share this eternal, never-ending, boundless love. And according to Jesus, there's a, a reflection issue here. The love they have for each other is also the love they have for you. And it is because of this infinite love, right, that this leads us to the third reason. Uh, they are, the father and Jesus are one, and this love they share with each other brings us to the, perhaps the most unique reason why Jesus alone is qualified to be our good shepherd. It's because of that infinite love that the good shepherd voluntarily, Jesus says, lays his life down for you and I. He doesn't have to do anything, but he chooses to do it out of that love. Now think about this. If Jesus' love is a reflection of the love that he has for his father, it becomes obvious why he volitionally goes to the cross for us. We know that Jesus loves his father more than anything else in the world and that they share an unlevel, an unrivaled un, uh, level of intimacy with each other. And according to Jesus, if we will allow him, if we will follow him as a good shepherd, that's the way that God wants to love you and I. And the way that Jesus knows the father is, is the way that he desires to know us. He's willing to die for us because of the profound love that he has for us. And this is why, jumping back to what we talked about last week, we skipped over this, but we'll introduce it today. Jesus draws this distinction in this chapter earlier between the good shepherd and the hired hand. The hired hand is the false shepherd in this teaching. And he tells us, listen, the hired hand, he loves the sheep when it's easy. When he's getting paid for it, he loves the sheep. When there's no risk, he loves the sheep. When, when it's advantageous to care for the sheep without any risk to self, he loves the sheep. But also... The hired hand bolts when the wolf comes around because to get in the mix between the sheep and the wolf, well, that might, that might put some risk in the life of, the, she- of the, the hired hand. He doesn't care about the sheep. The sheep are a utility to him. That's a problem. Jesus says that's not a good shepherd. That's a hired hand. However, he also says, on, on the other hand, the good shepherd deeply loves the sheep. And because of that love, he's compelled to stay no matter how great the peril is to his own life. It's kind of like emergency responders in our culture. When we're all running away from trial, they're bolting up into that mix. That's how Jesus is. When the wolf comes, he's up in the middle between you and I and the wolf. He is willing to risk his life for the flock. And in Jesus' case, he literally does. That's why he goes to the cross. He gets in between us and the ultimate wolf, sin. And so Jesus' willingness to live like this for us is what uniquely qualifies him to be the only person that can give us eternal life. Controversial statement, but nonetheless an important one to talk about. John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying, look, as it is with God, it is with with me. The love my Father has for me is the love I have for you. The permanency of peace that God gives me, even to the point where I can sustain the cross, I offer you if you'll take it. And he brings this interesting statement in here. He's He's no longer talking about life, like peace in life. He's actually talking about peace for death. Now, for many people, uh, the reality of dying carries with it a great irony. On one hand, it's an extremely common and absolute reality of life. We might almost consider like birth and death, and taxes if you read American history. They're like the most, they're, they're the, the common things that happen in a culture, right? Statistics tell us about every, every day, about 155,000 people die. And every, every uh, year, 55 million people die. So death is normal. And no matter where you go, every person in culture knows at some point they're going to have to deal with the death of a loved one. And if we're going to be honest... We're all going to die too, right? So as common as it is, humanity still has an incredibly hard time dealing with it. And this is especially true in the West. In the West, we, in the East, it's a little bit more accepted. In the West, we fight against it. It's, we have a near impossible time dealing with it. And there is really something that just doesn't feel right about losing people whom you deeply love. And then an easy feeling we all get when we think about a, a loved one we have lost, whether it's recently or in the past, it really is an evidence of the way that we've been hardwired by God. Uh, scripture teaches us that God created us to live forever. That's the way it was supposed to be. However, one of the consequences of sin was that humanity would be subjected to sin and, and death 
uh, subjected to uh, death and separation from God and each other. And so in a very real way, that uneasy feeling you get in your soul or in your belly when you think about death or losing a loved one, that is never a good feeling. It is your soul's way of affirming that something is deeply wrong with dying. It's not supposed to be that way. And this is yet another place where the good shepherd can lead those uh, to a greener pasture if you will permit him to. Because Jesus has freed those who follow him from the curse and the sting of death. And this is why a Christian can get to the place in life where they don't like death. I mean, I don't care for it. They, in fact, I would say I deeply dislike it. But the older I get, I'm, I'm going to be 40 this year, next year. I'm, you know, excited about that somewhat, surprisingly. Because with grace come wisdom, right? Isn't that what they say? Uh, <clears throat> hopefully no baldness. But that, there's no wisdom with that. Sorry if you're bald, right? Uh, <clears throat> so what, what happens here is as, the older you get, the more you start thinking about this. And I don't fear death anymore. I, I don't, like, long for it. I'm not asking for it. But the truth is that you, we can dislike death without being afraid of it. Living under the fear of death is a peace robber. It actually becomes a false shepherd. Think about this. When you're so paralyzed by death uh, or fearful of it, your life is now guided by the fear of dying, no longer the joy of living. That's a false shepherd. There's no hope in that. There's unrest. So consequently, you tend to live your life in a moderate state of denial. You know that death is out there, and you know that it's out there for those that you care about, but you choose to deny that imminent reality. And the problem with this is that eventually you can't avoid it. Death is certain, and you have two ways of dealing with it. You can let it deal with you, or you can let Jesus deal with it. This is how we'll close this morning. We'll look at two perspectives on how to deal with death. The first is, is from a famous one from a guy I've quoted in here before. Uh, it's an interview from the world-renowned physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking. Brilliant mind. Uh, not a believer at all. And in case you don't know, Dr. Hawking is almost completely paralyzed due to a neurological disease he's had for most of his life. He is probably one of the foremost uh, adversaries as far as uh, academic and spiritual critique against the Christian faith. He is not a fan of Christianity and writes regularly against it. And so he's had this disease for most of his life, which is really going to frame, I think, the statement I'm about to read to you. Because of this, he spent the better part of his life in a wheelchair. And that makes these words all the more powerful as far as I'm concerned. May of 2011, a reporter asked him this, if he feared death. And this is what he said. You know, I've lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years of my life. And I'm not afraid of death, but I'm also in no hurry to die. That's kind of the Christian equivalent to, like, we don't care. We're no longer afraid of it, but, you know, we're not longing for it. I have so much I want to do first. And here's where it gets a little sketchy as far as I'm concerned. He says, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy, st- a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. In other words, he's saying, we believe in this whole life after death thing because we're scared. Now, when you believe this way about life and death, forget the, the end game implications. Think about how this shapes who you are as a person right now. It tends to highlight how insignificant you are, right? In this case, you... And me, we have been equated to broken down computers destined for an eternal scrap heap. And so naturally, if you have that self-view of yourself, it naturally leads you to this place of hopelessness. And I would say that can really prohibit you from believing you have any real meaning or worth in this life. There is a darkness to this statement. It's in white letters behind me, but there is a darkness in what is being said here. In the end, you're just an insignificant drop of water in a really big ocean called life. And what we're reading here is what happens when the sting of death is shepherding a person's heart. Most people would have a hard time believing that they matter that little. If next week my sermon was, you're a broken down computer, you would probably never come back here, right? You, you wouldn't do that. You'd say, no, that doesn't sound right. That, that sounds odd to me, and I've got to be a little more valuable than that. There's something that does not sit well with us in the depths of our soul. We want to believe we have more meaning and significance in life beyond the statements. And we do have more significance and meaning in life beyond the statements. On the contrary, another perspective of death, listen to how Paul describes life and death. This is the verse. If you struggle with death, you should read this verse and memorize it, or these verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. 
Paul says when the perishable, he's given all these examples of life and death. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. In life or in death, let nothing move you. That's what he's saying. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I think you, we, can, we can deduce, he's saying, don't get so distracted by life and death that you stop or you withhold your whole life from Jesus. These things will keep you from serving him well. He says, be unmoved in your perseverance of, of following Jesus. Don't let these circumstances dictate how you pursue him. And so when you believe like Paul, something changes. You have a very different perspective on life and death. And you know life can be hard and physical death will never be easy. It's not easy to pray like we did at the beginning of this service or whether that is more personal for you today. The difference is you live knowing your life matters because you matter in the eyes of your good shepherd. You're no longer a a broken piece of hardware. You're a deeply valued life. And so you learn to deeply value this life, but you also have a hope in something far greater than the 80 years most of us will probably get on this earth because death's sting no longer has any sting. It's merely one more earthly pain that God in his infinite grace has managed to redeem for the good of his people through the good shepherd. And when you no longer fear death, it leads you to the place of peace. It leads you to a place of freedom. So in life or death, when you pursue Christ, there is freedom to the place where you can experience life to the full because you're no longer ruled by the restraints of life or death. You know the good shepherd is the Lord over both. And as a result, you live as you were meant to in the eternal peace and life-giving power of Jesus. So once you believe what Jesus is saying is there's nothing that can snatch you from his life-giving hands. You are sealed in him forever through the power of his Holy Spirit for all eternity. And so life circumstances and death, they become problems. They consider it like this, a shark with no teeth or a wasp with no stinger. Yeah, they can irritate and bother, but the true power of what it means to follow Jesus means they are intimidating from a distance but harmless up close. They cannot hurt you. They just can't. Even if they take your life, you're with Christ forever. Amen. I'd like to hear more of that here. That's just a pastoral request. Write that on your communication cards, all right? So uh, Jesus' teaching leaves us with a question we've got to reflect on. Have you trusted in Jesus to be your good shepherd? Have you chosen life or death? Every one of us has to make that decision for the long haul and for the immediate. And during this time, are you going to choose life today? If you've got a struggle, will you choose life over the, over the shackles of, of oppression? Will you ask and allow the good shepherd to answer that question honestly for you? He knows you better than you know you. So don't say, what do I think about me? Maybe take some time in response to say, Jesus, what do, what do you think about me? And know that no matter what he says, whether it's sweet as honey or maybe a little bitter like vinegar, because in his love he wants to move you towards him, know that he says these things to you with the same love he has for his Father in heaven. That is a, that is a statement of love, however he communicates to you. Today, let Jesus be your guide and your provision through the wilderness. Give him the reins of your heart and believe in his promises. And I'll close with this. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about peace in your life? And what are you going to do about it? Make sure that whatever he says to you becomes an action step as you leave this room today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, again, another, another incredible blessing of the good shepherd. We thank you, Father, that not only are you our good, our good shepherd, but you begin to show us in these teachings that, that with, the, with the title of good shepherd comes these amazing benefits that you give us uh, you give us great things, and there are great promises, and your attributes, God, we can tap into them and experience life fully because of you. And so I simply put, pray right now as we have a, a bit of a brief time of reflection and, and contemplation uh, that you would just sift and sort our hearts right now. Help us, God, to, to know where we have peace in you and where we are without it. And I pray, Lord, that in, in a true spirit of honesty, uh, we would be genuinely honest with you. You already know 
So may we have the peace in our hearts to profess in the depths of our soul where we are with you and where we need to grow. God, make good on your promise this morning in the life of everyone in this room. Shepherd us to the promise of your peace. Let us experience eternal life, not just, God, the future hope of it, although we pray for that, but the immediate benefit of what it means to know we are securely fixed in the hands of your Son, Christ. It is in his name that we pray now. Amen.